Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Got a host, Rick. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. You bet. Thanks for having me. Um, so we just went through mobility experience, and you were a great help because you have a background in uh, EMS as an EMS pro professional, but also as a firefighter, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was a firefighter, paramedic, and I did technical rescue in Scottsdale, Arizona, for twenty seven years. 27 years yeah so imagine 27 years in scottsdale arizona you've seen some stuff uh yeah i have um you know to, to kind of jump to it I, you know i retired almost three years ago actually three years ago this month yeah um and i kind of i sat down and tried to figure out how many calls i'd run over the course of my career and it's over sixteen thousand. wow and that don't get me wrong. That's not 16,000, you know, fires with burning people yeah. and, and that. But even just a small percentage of 16,000 is a, a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I, yeah. That's crazy. Saw man. my share. Yeah. I, I often talk about firefighter, paramedic, EMT professionals. Um, a, a lot of statistics are known about law enforcement officers because whether it's scrutiny or or just organizational um history there's a lot of statistics on what they go through and you know officer involved shootings ois but firefighters are very different because they are arriving often after the trauma um or the act has been conducted and a lot of times you guys see things that even officers police officers don't want to see or see for a small bit of time you're dealing with that um if i ask you like how was your run as a firefighter like like if you can summarize your career what would you say oh wow um i think in a word storied you know um i didn't have a I didn't have a normal career. I didn't have a typical fire service career. You know, when I started in 93, I walked into a fire station and said, are there any jobs here? Now people will wait in a line with, you know, a thousand people just to get an application and start the process yeah. to get hired. Yeah. So in a way I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I got turned away and sent to, to uh, get my EMT cert. Uh, to get some fire science classes under my belt. And then I got on as a reserve. Uh, so I, I functioned as a reserve for a few years and, and then uh, went through a full-time hiring process and, and got hired full-time. So at that point, I was my rank was firefighter EMT. And then shortly after that, I uh, went to medic school. Mm. So I became a paramedic and uh, and I was part of the technical rescue team. And technical rescue is kind of all the stuff that a normal fire truck will pull up to and go, I, I don't know what the fuck to do with this situation. Yeah. So that includes things like swift water rescue, uh, you know, in, in the Phoenix area in Arizona, we get monsoon, uh, storms in the summer. We get long rains in the winter. We get, uh, floods in normally dry washes. So swift water rescue, mountain rescue, which was kind of our butt bread and butter. I did a lot of helicopter work. Um, trench collapse, uh, confined space. So kind of, I don't say it a lot, but it's, it's like spec ops for the fire service yeah. really. And that's, it's usually reserved for somebody with around maybe 10 years of experience before, because you know, in most departments, this is a seniority based thing. And especially in big departments that have a team. So you've got to have some juice to get on. Um, it's like the SWAT I, team of, of exactly yeah yeah it's a it's a special team. Um, I had rock climbing and and uh, backcountry travel experience then, uh, and they knew it. So when I did well in my academy, I got a TRT assignment as a probationary firefighter. So instead of having to wait ten years and then maybe just do TRT for ten or fifteen years, I did TRT for for about 25 years. Wow. Like right out of the gate. Yeah. Wow. So here's the not fair part of that and getting that experience. Those with the experience get more experience. 
because when you show up on a call with your crew, if it's something, you know, kind of hairy, the company officer is going to send his top guy in. And once you become the top guy, you, you just, you continue to elevate. And over that period of time that I did it, I elevated pretty highly. So at the end of my career, uh, I was a firefighter par paramedic by rank, but I was also qualified as an acting engineer so I could drive any truck in the city. And I was qualified as an acting captain so I could function as a company officer. Um, so I, I had those qualifications for a lot of years. It was great for overtime because the chief, you know, has an open spot somewhere. I could, I could basically fill any spot in any truck in the city. Um, I was teaching uh, technical rescue in the regional training consortium, which included cities like Scottsdale, Mesa, Chandler, Tempe, kind of the whole East Valley uh, of the Metro Phoenix area. Um, so yeah, I, I basically went from crawling to walking pretty quick. And then I really went from walking to running really quick in my career. So to, to kind of summarize it, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. When, um, just for people kind of like to contextualize um, technical rescue, is technical rescue per Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, is there one technical rescue team? And like, what's the size of a team per city? Like, what's the task organization break down to? Yeah, so the Phoenix metro area is, is um, world-renowned for the way that that something called the automatic aid system works. So most of the municipalities in the valley are dispatched by Phoenix Fire. And as long as your surrounding city meets minimum staffing and equipment requirements, you can become part of the automatic aid system. So what that does from a 911 perspective is it, it essentially drops the borders. So if you call 911 and you're on the border of, of Phoenix and Scottsdale or Scottsdale and Tempe, whatever unit that's appropriate for the call that's closest is going to show up. Mm. Whether it came from your city or not, doesn't matter. As long as you're part of the automatic aid system, you get that service. So the way that, re that uh, ties into technical rescue, these big cities have a technical rescue team. And that team is usually based out of at least one station in Scottsdale. There happen to be two of them in Phoenix. God, I think there's like five or six of them because yeah. they're, they're a very big department. Um, and same thing, when a technical rescue call comes in somewhere in the valley, they will send the, the closest TRT units. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So these are, these are people, these are firefighters that are on shift at the time. Oh, got it. So, got it. Got it. And I think I know what you're thinking. So in most of the areas in the in the country, search and rescue is is kind of the the standard when when you are trying to draw a parallel with technical rescue. And that's typically run by local sheriff's departments. I think that's the case here. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times those resources are called in from home or off duty. That takes a while to mobilize. Because yeah. not all those units, you know, fully staffed on call, they're, they're not, not really staffed. Good. They yeah. don't have the equipment, uh, you know, at their house, they got to go to a station or somewhere and, and pick up a vehicle and then respond to wherever they're going, uh, in the Valley and in a lot of, you know, big cities around the country, these, these units are staffed and ready all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I have a couple of our employees like Jimmy Laughlin, uh, who's a firefighter in California. And most firefighters love their job. I mean, I, I don't think I've really talked to any disgruntled firefighters. Law enforcement agencies, man, I talked to plenty of disgruntled law enforcement officers who deal with all the politics and drama and even even the perspective from uh, people. Um, have you had a good run in avoiding a lot of those obstacles that many first responders face? with not dealing with politics, with not dealing with um, civil unrest, with people being angry at firefighters. How has that gone for you? I, I never experienced a time when, 
when the public disliked firefighters. And keep in mind, over the you know, nine eleven happened over the course of my career, and I watched that, you know, unimaginably negative event bring a country together. Yeah, uh, three hundred forty-three firefighters died at nine eleven, and to put that into perspective, the the current. Uh, firefighter roster in Scottsdale is something like 260. Wow. So an entire so a, a city. A number in excess of, yeah. of my entire old department. Yeah, which is big. Yeah. On one call. Wow. Um, so I, I, saw, um, I saw the public be maybe a little indifferent toward the fire service when I first started. Um, I did a couple of years of wildland firefighting. Uh, I always, I always saw a lot of appreciation from people when, when we do a, a wildland, uh, fire job. And I, I worked as a seasonal with Tonto National Forest for two years. Um, so the public interactions were always great. Uh, same with municipal fire department. Um, you know, it was, it was fine, but then 9-11 kicked it into high gear and, and people loved us. And we had nothing to do with New York City other than that we're, we're wearing blue also, riding around on fire trucks and doing essentially the same job. However, fighting fire on the East Coast is radically different than, than West Coast. Um, be that as it may, um, I, I, I saw that progression after 9-11. There was a lot of appreciation and then it it just kind of faded. And I think there's, there's kind of just this apathetic view of emergency services and public safety in general by the public. Now, um, you know, people say, where's, where's the cop when you need them? Um, they don't really do that with, with firefighters ever especially in, in a place like Scottsdale, because if my station was busy, if we were on a call, the next closest station is going to show up maybe two to four minutes later than I would have. Mm. Um, so, so we're always there. Um, the, the public perception is, is just completely different, I think, compared to, to law enforcement officers. Um, and if you think about it, we're, yes, we're, we're both in public safety and we respond to emergencies, but you know, aside from somebody parked in a fire lane, we don't enforce any laws, you know, code enforcement handles that. Uh, and they, and they do inspections for, for fire safety, but the guys on the trucks never, you know, we, we show up and we help people. Mm. People want us there. Right. Yeah. And, and they need us there. When people call the cops, um, it's also an emergency and they want them there. But there's a percentage of the time when, when PD shows up where people don't want them there. And yeah. that's when they're, when the lights are on in your rear view mirror, we never, never get that. You yeah. Know? So it's, um, it's different. I, I don't, I think there were, there were times when I felt disgruntled, um, but those times were more a feeling toward the the career that I was doing after a really long, difficult run of shifts. So, you know, multiple shifts <clears throat> in a row where where we were up all night, or multiple shifts in a month where there there was some really catastrophic shit that that we experienced. And we're, firefighters are used to winning. Like we show up and we, and we put the fire out. We show up and we um, bring the dead back to the land of the living sometimes. On it, straight up, like save lives. Um, and those are, those are the wins, but man, when, when firefighters have a long string of losses, that is the stuff that, that gets you disgruntled. That's the stuff that, that, um, makes you lay in a, in a twin bed at a fire station away from your house 
and think, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Mm. I, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And, and like just praying that the, that the lights didn't pop on and, and we didn't get another call before it was time to go home at the, at the end of a shift. What is, uh, I'm curious, um, one, what is the percentage of actual firefighting versus, especially in te technical rescue versus, you know, helping somebody out of a trap vehicle? What's that by percentage? And also when you say wins and losses, what is a win and what is a loss as, as you're from your experience? Yeah. And, and the way, the way that our technical rescue companies and by company, I mean the, the station and the group of people that are there function is typically there's a regular fire truck, whether that's a fire engine or a ladder truck or, or a truck company there, that's kind of our daily driver. So if we're going to, if we're going to run errands, if we're going to go training, uh, and, and just, and get called to fire and EMS, that fire truck is what we respond. Mm. Back at the station is something called a support truck. Certain cities call it a, call it a heavy rescue, what, whatever the, the nomenclature, it's a huge rolling toolbox with all the specialized equipment to function and operate at a technical rescue call. When that call comes in, if the, you know, if the, if the guys are in quarters at the station, that truck rolls or that truck plus the engine roll and, you know, we'll split the crew. Um, so, so that's kind of how, how that functions. So yeah, I did technical rescue, but I also fought fire. I also ran a ton of EMS calls. So I, I had all of the normal responsibilities of a, of a regular firefighter plus technical rescue on top of that. So there were, and I mean, use your imagination over 27 years, our technical rescue team was stationed at different stations, di different physical locations in the city. Um, we had years where we, we had a, a fire engine. We had years where we had a truck company. Uh, you know, I kind of, over that long of a career, I, I kind of saw and did it all in different variations, some outstanding and, and really fun and some not. Um, but I think, a, you know, when I think of a win on a call, and let's break it down into fire, EMS, and technical rescue. So I, th I think a win for an EMS call would be a cardiac arrest and we show up and I put the, put the electrodes on them and, and there's no electrical activity in the heart. This person is dead and we start advanced cardiac life support protocols and we bring them into the hospital with a pulse and a blood pressure. And then down the road, they get discharged and walk out of the hospital. That's a win for EMS. Mm. A loss is you show up to that same call and you never get any electrical activity. Um, you never get a pulse and you leave exhausted from doing CPR. And um, you've either transported basically a dead body uh, to the hospital or now they're allowing us to leave that patient at the scene uh, with PD there to, to oversee the scene without tra even transporting them to the hospital. So that loss is walking down a hallway and out the front door and, and still hearing the family crying in the background as you walk to your truck, carrying your gear. That's a loss. Mm. Um, how many, if you could articulate just roundabout numbers, how many wins versus how many losses have you had? I think a percentage would, would be the easiest way to, to do that. And I had, I had years, Mike, where no bullshit. I was like 10% wins. Wow. Like one in 10 cardiac arrests. Like I, I worked on a crew. We were really solid and, and there were, there were some new treatment modalities that were available at, uh, at our disposal. And, uh, yeah, we were, we really kicked ass for a couple of years there, but, um, the reality, I think, over the over the span of the country is probably 
between one and three percent wins. It, it's ha, that low. Have you seen? I know you've seen a lot, but now looking back at your career and kind of contextualizing the overall experience, can you kind of carve out these major ebbs and flows uh, based on things that were happening in society, like um, the infiltration in Arizona of fentanyl, you know, and and how that was crushing people, and then the introduction to what is the uh, fentanyl? Um, the Narcan, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any kind of uh, correlation there that you've seen spikes in crime that made sense because these th things were going on that stand out to you? I I think PD would be the the you know that would be the place to ask about crime. I you know fire responds to violent crimes, but I I don't I think that the sections of our city that are that are violent. Um, have maybe seen just a gradual, constant increase, not really a spike. Um, the thing about Narcan or Naloxone uh, is that it, it works remarkably well on normal opioids. Uh, we carry morphine as a, as a pain med. Uh, it's you know, to use the term antidote, but it reverses the, the effects of morphine. Um, but if somebody overdoses on anything opioid uh, related, Narcan will, will work well on that at a pretty reasonable dose. But fentanyl, when fentanyl uh, hit the mainstream, we, we didn't carry enough Narcan in our rigs to even come close to treating a, a real fentanyl overdose. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's called legislation by catastrophe. If you, that, that's how change comes about in the fire service. Mm. You know, th things like the Chicago fire, you have, a, you have an entire city that, that burns down. Or you have, um, you know, tragedies like uh, a fire in the Beverly Hills Supper Club back in the day. That brought about changes in code enforcement and the way um, uh, business exit doors were mandated to, to swing outward in, instead of inward. 9-11, um, you know, that, that changed the fire service in, in this way. I started training on weapons of mass destruction. Never did that before. Um, we started doing active shooter training. Never did that before. We had we had an idea of what we would do, but it was far less aggressive than than what we ultimately got trained on later. And we're equipped, you know, got vests and Kevlar on fire trucks now. Like I, when I started, that was absolutely not anywhere on my radar screen. I never would have imagined that that we would have a problem like that in, in our society to the point where we were going to have to equip and train uh, to, to handle that. Um, but I think it speaks a little bit to the strength and, and perseverance and, and uh, resilience of Americans who are, are in places of power that, that are willing to make changes spend money, push legislation through, uh, come up with training and, and resources to react to a problem like that, whether it's active shooters or fentanyl or a fire in a public place. Mm. So back to the win or loss thing that we talked about the EMS thing. I think a, a win at a fire scene is... Uh, <laughs> I got a picture of me in, in my gear with my SCBA mask still on and I'm walking away from a burning house with a chihuahua under, under my arm like it's a football. Uh, and, you know, I, I rescued people out of fires too. Those are wins. A loss uh, is something like paradise with a huge wildfire that, that blows through and, and all that's left standing is, is a chimney. That's a loss. Uh, and then, you know, technical rescue. Uh, I 
I mentioned that I'd done a lot of helicopter work and I, I actually, I've, I long forgot how many helicopter rescue missions I flew. Um, but flying in alone as a, as a solo rescuer with medical gear and getting hoisted down out of a helicopter to a rock climber or a hiker or a mountain biker that's injured or, or worse and being able to treat them, make evacuation decisions, coordinate efforts on the ground and evacuate that, that patient and get them to the hospital and get them treated. That's a, that's a win for, for technical rescue, but a loss I would say is recovering bodies in, in special circumstances where my training and experience was required, like a confined space. Um, that was, that was a, one of the calls that kind of did me in was a, was a confined space rescue where we showed up and we had viable patients when we arrived on scene and we lost them due to some external environmental factors that were out of our control. Um, but when you, when you put that cape on and you're, you're, you're able to, to do all of these amazing things that nobody else can do. I mean, that's the, I think that's the definition of special operations. You're doing special things that, that not every other firefighter can do. Um, and when the opportunity to do that is taken from you, it's a huge loss. Yeah. Um, I have a employee whose husband um, is a firefighter, and I think you met him. I, yeah, I talked to him at dinner. dinner last night. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy, and um, she talks about how his department has a lot of resources now, especially in the the area of mental health, even, even a really good protocol of getting these guys set up for success when they come out of a, a, a loss, like you would say. And not many, I haven't heard of many agencies or institutions doing this period. And certainly it didn't exist in the military for me, nor do I think it exists a lot for uh, people today. But I imagine you know, I've, the, some of the most painful stories I've ever heard were um, e involving fires and rescue of children, especially where the wind was taken away and everybody lost. And those are tough. And, and just hearing those stories and me creating the illustration in my head of how things unfolded breaks my heart. And I imagine human beings aren't meant to deal with that much trauma over a span of time without having very good uh, clinical and uh, inpatient care over time. Firefighters are handed a lot of this throughout their careers, and you did it for decades. How is that? How have you fared on the mental health side of this? And was there a breaking point for you? Um, and also, you, you know, you talk about you have a book coming out in March, and uh, I. It reminds me, as you told me the title, where you, where you said it, it had almost killed you. Um, let's talk about that as well. Yeah. So when I, here's how I I try and take a grasp of people's attention when I'm when I'm speaking in in that capacity, and I'm about to tell my story. I I say, my name is Rick Booker. And on September 12th of 2019, I killed myself. Mm. And I, I say that because um, I administered a, a lethal injection uh, and had crews not responded to me when they did, uh, within the amount of time that they did, uh, I was probably two minutes away from, from dying. So firefighters wanted up rescuing you and saving your life. Yes. Um, there's, 
when I started, there were, there were essentially no mental health um, resources for us whatsoever. Furthermore, the, the fire culture then uh, was, was very much a rub some dirt on it, man up, nothing bothers me, kind of a, kind of a mentality. Um, and PTSD wasn't even a, wasn't even a thing. I mean, nobody knew what that was or let alone what the signs and symptoms were. So I had, I, I, I relate it like this. Um, those repetitive losses that you go through are, are like gut punches. Like you're, you're just taking them to the body over and over again. And then that special one that, that really reaches out and touches you, the pediatric cardiac arrest or drowning that is the same sex and age as your child, that's a knockout punch. The fatality fire where there was so much debris and, um, and hoarder, uh, material in a house that was on fire and, and barely hot enough to even stay in and, and work, um, where you realized that there was actually a body in the hallway that we had all walked over repeatedly during the firefight. That's a knockout. Um, what I wound up with was, and I've, I've compared it this way in the past. I, I was the Toyota Hilux that was completely overloaded with people, equipment, chickens, you name it. Suspensions bottomed out, tires are bulging, and then a pigeon flies over and shits on it. And then the whole thing collapses because of that little additional load. So over my period of time, that, that load gradually, steadily built up. And then a very small event in my life happened and the wheels fell off. And I decided that that, that day was going to be my last. So I was saved. I woke up and I've woken up in an ICU multiple times in my life, but, uh, this time I woke up and thought to myself, holy shit, that didn't work because what I had overdosed on was over 10 times the required amount of narcotics to kill somebody. And my intent was not to fail. Fortunately, my girlfriend, Lynn, knew something was wrong and through some channels figured out where I was through PD. PD showed up at, at the location that I had gone to and found me. And the, one of the things that I regret more than anything else in my life is the fact that the fire crew that came and rescued me and saved my life was from the other shift at my station. So I woke up in the ICU after three, three days in a coma. And shortly thereafter, I flew to a place called the IFF Center of Excellence. The IFF is the International Association of Firefighters. It's our union. And they they do inpatient treatment for firefighters and paramedics for mental health and substance abuse. Unfortunately, I only had one of those to deal with, which was suicide. After I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder, severe anxiety, and, and um, com um, complex PTSD, I, I didn't believe that I had any of that stuff. In fact, riding around on a fire truck, I was a dick. And so, so was everybody on my crew because 
everybody finds out when somebody goes out on a, on a mental health issue and there was no empathy. When the reality of the situation was when, when we were, when we were doing that, my crew had a cumulative, um, ex number of years in the fire service in excess of 90 between the four of us. We were some of the most senior, most experienced people in the fire department and we were vicious. And there are more people like that out there, I think in the fire service, than there are crews with empathy toward their brothers and sisters. And that's a big fucking problem. After I got back from the center in Maryland, uh, the, the work started and, and I, I learned everything I could about PTSD. I started down a treatment path that included cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR and a light medicine regimen. And I returned home from the center with a huge toolbox the equivalent of that support truck sitting in the bay at the fire station. But now I had a rig that was full of coping tools that, that would help me get through the rest of my life and help prolong my life uh, and help me deal with, with what I've got. Fortunately, those resources exist now. And I've spoken about them on a, on a few other outlets and people are starting to reach out to me. So I, I thought, okay, I'm at a point now where I can tell my story without breaking down hard as it is still. And this problem of a stigma existing, existing, existing that is keeping people from stepping forward and asking for help because they're afraid of what people around them will think. Mike, what do you think the worst thing you can do to a cop or a firefighter is? Not let them do their job. Fucking A right. No. If you sat down with, with either of those professions and said, you cannot be a cop. You cannot be a firefighter anymore. You cannot run calls anymore. You will never have an opportunity to experience a win again. It's soul crushing. And brother, believe me, if I, if I could right now, I would, my preference would be to still be running calls mm. and still be winning and still be teaching new firefighters and paramedics how to win. Um, but I can't. So what I do to help now, um, I started writing a book right when I arrived in Maryland, they handed us journals and I just, I just started pouring it out on, on pages and it took three years, but I finished it and it's called flame and fortune, how the fire service al almost killed me. Mm. And it's been available for pre-order. It'll be available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and anywhere you get books uh, or eBooks, March first. And I formed something called RB603.net, and that's me. Um, I'm available to to come out and speak to groups to advocate for mental health in not only the fire service, which is obviously near and dear to my heart, but also public safety and potentially even, even the armed forces. And the, here's how I got kind of into this community that, that you're such a big part of. Um, I'll frequently ask people about their favorite fire department podcast. And there isn't one. There, there really aren't people talking much about mm. the fire service and there's nobody talking about firefighter mental health for the most part. So being interested in podcasts and, and doing adventure sports that lend themselves to solitude and, and putting in an earbud and listening to, to something and, and learning, 
when I got home, I, I researched, I just did a search for, for PTSD podcasts. They're all military. So I thought, all right, I, I'm listening for the mental health portion of it, not necessarily the, the military portion of it, but the more I listened to different episodes on different outlets, the more I realized that we're going through the same things. We have the same signs, we have the same symptoms, we have the same outcomes. More firefighters die by their own hand every year than die in the line of duty. Um, you know, suicide in, in, in the military and in public safety is a huge problem, despite all of the efforts currently underway. So I, I started pursuing opportunities like this to, to appear and, and reach a big audience. And when people started reaching out to me just to either say, Hey bro, thanks for, thanks for coming on and, and telling your story. It really helps to know that I'm not alone. Um, but I also get contacts from people that say, Hey, I work over in North Carolina and we got a problem. When can you be here? So the public speaking thing is, is hopefully about to take off. Having the book out, uh, is, is hopefully going to help some people because my, my message is that you're not alone when you're in it and you're suffering from the, the signs and symptoms of, of PTSD, anxiety, depression, you feel like you're alone. That's why the stigma exists because people are afraid of, um, stepping forward. They're afraid of coming out and having people ridicule them or judge them or tell them you can't do this job anymore. So it, it paints people into a corner and I think in a way, subconsciously, that's what it did to me. You know, I, I got backed into this corner and I, I mean, I wasn't, I'm a pretty clever dude, but I wasn't smart enough to, to figure out my own issues that, that were presenting themselves and had been for years. I mean, I had signs and symptoms for a long time. So that's what, that's what my goal is now is to let people know that they're not alone, give them the, the support that they need to step forward. But also in the last year, the people that have reached out to me and that I've, that I've spoken to, I'm finding one of two things in the U S you've got big cities, big departments that have a lot of mental health resources available to them. And you've got firefighters that don't use them. You've got cops that don't use them. And th these are things that can be done in complete anonymity. It, it would be a HIPAA violation. It would be a legal violation to make your mental health treatment public or available to anybody not involved. Yet, people still fear stepping forward and, and getting help. So you've got big departments that have resources and the people aren't using them. But if you fly over this country at night and you look out the window, most of it's dark out there. Those dark places are where volunteer departments or small sheriff's offices operate. Those places don't have any mental health resources at all. And I'm speaking in generality, sure, but no resources, but you still have the problem because traumatic events, emergencies, tragedies happen everywhere. I just happened to have seen a lot of them because of where I worked. I ran a lot of calls and I worked in a, in a special unit that, that exposed me to some stuff. But I mean, you know, as well as I do, it doesn't, it doesn't take that level of exposure. It takes some level of tragedy. And if it's, that drowning that hits you just right or whatever that thing is that, that affects you personally in a different way 
than any other call that you've ever run, that's traumatic and it can have an effect. Are you doing, um, you're doing work with Two Wolf Foundation as well, right? With Brian? I am. Um, Brian and I, Brian appeared on a, on another podcast also. And, and that was kind of my, my story interested him. And I think initially when he contacted me, he had a guest speaker role, um, in mind. And, and let me tell you what, but before we go down that two, two wolf foundation is a new nonprofit that provides wilderness advocacy and wilderness projects land stewardship programs to veterans and first responders who are having mental health issues. And Two Wolf did their first, uh, their first trip last summer, oddly enough, to a place called Four Peaks, which is actually within uh, sight of my backyard. I can walk out and look at the mountain range where those guys were working last year. And I didn't know they were up there. That's so cool. So when Brian and I got to talking about their first project, which, which was taking six people out and operating in the, in the back country vehicle born in a, in an overland kind of a, uh, platform, my interest was, was spiked because yes, I, I'll, I would be more than happy to sit around a campfire and, and talk and tell my story and, and give people some hope. But, you know, I've been overlanding since it was car camping. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I've been camping my whole life, but I've been traveling in the back country uh, for same thing, decades. Um, and I've seen that industry evolve and grow and it's, it's, it's amazing on, on a lot of levels, on a few levels, it's a little disturbing in that some of our public lands are, are being abused and um, not taken care of, which is where Two Wolf comes in and provides that land stewardship. So those, these projects include things like trail maintenance, cleanup projects, um, and it's... Two Wolf is starting to take off. It's got it's got a little bit of sponsorship. Uh, it needs more sponsorship. The, these things require not only equipment, but they require people and they require funding. I can't think of a more noble nonprofit to get involved with because this this reaches this this reaches me in the mental health arena, but it also you know, the land stewardship level, because I told you I worked a couple of years in the, with the national forest as a firefighter and that's land stewardship. I really felt that I didn't know I was feeling, I just thought it was cool to go out and fight wildland fire. But when, you know, at the end of the day, you have saved untold acreage from destruction. That's, there you go. That's another win. So now the opportunity to work with the Two Wolf Foundation uh, is another opportunity for me for a win. And I, I really like that. And, and uh, you invited Brian up for the winter mobility experience here in Utah. And he invited me as his guest. And I got to be honest, coming up, I, I did a little research, did some due diligence, and I, I looked at what the program was about, and I thought, oh, yeah, that looks, that looks pretty cool. I, I like that subject matter. And for those listening, if you, I mean, if for, for some reason you're not familiar with what the mobility experience is, Fieldcraft puts this, this thing together where you, you are working out of vehicles, you are addressing things like camp security and safety, you're addressing... Uh, trauma and uh, medical care in the back country. We even had some special guests and we talked about international travel, which um, you can't find people for the most part that have this level of travel experience and are willing to just show up and, and share it. Um, so yeah, at vehicle loadout, um, all these things. And we were Honestly, we were very restrained by the amount of snow 
Like you, it's funny because you think kick ass. We're doing a winter mobility experience. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna drive in snow. We're gonna camp in snow and and that and we're gonna operate outdoor outdoors all day every day. And we got too too much. I mean, usually measured in inches, now measured in feet. It just and but that was an interesting experience to me because you have to know when your equipment is not capable and not appropriate for, for a given condition and nothing, you know, I don't think there's a, there's a weather condition that can limit travel more effectively than, than cold and snow, cold and precipitation. So we did get to camp on snow. I mean, I, I pounded my tent stakes into ice last night. Um, so to, you know, and I, I've had that experience, but for people to be able to show up and, and get that training from you. Here's what I didn't do. I had never caught fish on a frozen lake and I caught nine of them today in a hole. <laughs> and, That's so cool. And we built fire, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on snow, which, you know, kind of goes against logic. You would think that's not even possible. Um, anyway, that's, that's how I got hooked up with Brian and now how I'm tied in with you sitting here with this awesome opportunity to, to share my story. And, and, and I think, you know, just my, my mission is, is multifaceted, but when people talk to me and they, they reach out to me and say, Hey man, you have an incredible story. Um, you should write a book. Well, it took three years, <laughs> but I did it. Um, so I, I, I also tell people I lived my story and I still can't believe it. I mean, there, there are aspects and outcomes, uh, of my life that, that I never would have imagined. You know, if, if somebody, if a time traveler showed up 30 years ago and said, bro, I know you're a brand new firefighter, but check this shit out. You, you're going to see this. You're going to do this. You're going to feel this. You're going to meet these people. And then this is going to happen. And then at the end of it all, you're going to find out who you really are and, and where you came from, which was something else that I, that I never knew and would never have had the opportunity to find out had I succeeded in September of 2019. Mm. What an amazing story, man. What an amazing journey. Um, so you said this uh, book's available. I mean, by the time you likely hear this podcast, it's available now, so it's easy. We could throw it in the links. But when it comes to first responder advocacy, mental health advocacy, do you have a place where people can go to hear what you have to say? Do you put content out there in any way? I don't. And here's why. Um, so you can link up with me at rb603.net. You can email me directly at rickbooker, R-I-C-K-B-U-C-H-E-R at gmail.com. But the reason I don't have a podcast of my own, um, which seems like a logical solution because I, I believe in not bringing somebody a problem unless I have a, a solution to it. And I did mention there's no popular firefighter podcast maybe down the road, but right now I feel like the lights and siren are on for me to reach as many people as I can. And that's been effective through the, the channels that I'm, that I'm pursuing now. So at, at this point, I think a conservative estimate is probably that about a quarter million people have heard my story. Um, what I want, and I, I'm not a writer. I'm not seeking fame or glory or, or anything like that. What I'm after is a change in our culture. And if I can get the fire culture to change first and concentrate on that, I've arrived on scene and I can turn the lights and siren off. Then if I can pursue the rest of not only 
um, law enforcement, maybe military if they'll if they'll have me. I think maybe I would be an interesting outside source or, or outside perspective mm. that can relate on a different basis. And I want to come back back to that for a second. But then also the rest of our society. I mean, trauma and PTSD is not limited to the military and first responders. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a, a an ocean of opportunity out there for me. But the interesting thing about the, to bring it back, the, the mobility experience was we had a group of people this weekend together that have preparedness, a mindset and overland travel in, in common. And we all came from different backgrounds, mm-hmm. but we sat down, we got, um, I couldn't even put a value on the training, invaluable training, priceless. We broke bread together. We had an amazing host. I mean, the, the, I was ready to just camp and rough it. And I have a, I have a truck full of dehydrated food just in case. <laughs> and I, fortunately I didn't dip into that at all. Need that. Um, so yeah, to, to have something, uh, that's still kind of a niche. I mean, the it, overlanding is very popular now. It's more popular than ever. But as part of our society, I don't think most people really comprehend what our vehicles are capable of mm-hmm. and what we're capable of as people. Um, and with that training, so you bring all these different people together and, and before you know it, you're not talking about your trucks. You're not talking about your, your, vehicle loadout, you're, you're talking about things like mental health. You're talking about, uh, careers. You're talking about cars, your hobbies. It's, it, it's a very special way to bring a very diverse group of people together. And I'm super fortunate and and glad to have been a part of it. No, I, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that's the, the magic of preparedness is it kind of brings, um, common ground to people from different backgrounds. We have people from Louisiana, um, Las Vegas, Arizona, Colorado, Montana, all over the country. And it's just, um, their experiences. They're not technical training courses. I want people to walk away and go, I don't even remember what we were supposed to be there for, but I, I made a lot of friendships, a lot of contacts and had an amazing time. And, um, it's all about memories too. For me, I go, man, like, you know, we, we made a fire and we cooked fish that we caught and, and it's like, wait a minute, I thought it was a mobility course. Like it is because that's what happens when you're in a mobility situation and the worst case scenario, you gotta be prepared and preparedness surrounds the platform and the, the platform is just the vessel. And there's so many cool things that could be shared like with that experience. And so, I had a great time, man. Um, I'm looking forward to reading your book. Did you do the audio recording for it, or is it just? Uh, I'm going to start recording that next month. I'd I'd love to have it out in May. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of depends on how busy I get. Yeah, I assume you um, probably get busy. But so. I this is I'm a do-it-yourselfer, and and I think that that started with me due to a lack of money. I couldn't afford an oil change, so I I did it myself. And mm-hmm. now, you know, I just turned 50 and I still change my own oil. Yeah. Um, so I think that th- this whole project has been a do it yourself thing. Also, I, I built my own website. I self published the book and I'll, I'll read the audio book. Awesome. Yeah. That's going to be really cool. I'm looking forward to that guys. If you're listening to the podcast, um, all of the notes will be down below, including the link to Rick's book. Uh, the name of the title again, flame and fortune, how the fire service almost killed me. Awesome, man. Thank you for sharing your story, Rick. I appreciate you. And I had a great time over the mobility experience and, uh, looking forward to doing potentially more in the future, yeah, especially absolutely. with tool foundation and everything they're doing. It's an amazing organization. Check those guys out as well. I have those link, uh, links down below. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah. Thanks guys. <laughs>